On this episode of the Globe Screen Podcast, we have Marie Castile Menchin Shar, who is a Paris-based director and producer. She joined us for a discussion about her directing career and making films such as A Good Man, Heaven Will Wait, Once in a Lifetime, and Bowling. She also discussed her roles as a producer on such feature films such as Wawa and Monsieur N, including how key cast members were assembled for each of these productions. Globe Screen Podcast would like to thank Pyramid Distribution for making this episode possible. Thanks so much for joining the podcast today. So You're I guess, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with filmmaking in the first place. Okay, well, I don't know how long do we have. <laughs> well, I started as a journalist. I made my journalism studies in, in Paris. And then I wanted to do a master in broadcasting in LA. Uh, my dad, uh, you know, lived in Los Angeles, uh, was American. So I thought that, you know, I would just uh, go to LA and uh, go to a university, UCLA, and, uh, and register as a new student, which was, <laughs> I didn't know the process. So of course I couldn't, you know, um, I was too late for the, the admissions and all that. And I ended up going to a community college for a year, but started to work as I did in France. I worked for a few um, uh, radios and um, I started working in Los Angeles for a small press agency. And uh, very quickly, what I wanted to become an investigation journalist, I saw that that was not the main interest in Los Angeles, the main interest being the Hollywood's, you know, business and cinema. So quickly, I uh, got hired by the Hollywood Reporter, uh, worked in the international um, issues, and then as the um, international um, uh, associate international editor of the main um, issue. Uh, and that was how I discovered the world of, you know, cinema and uh, the industry of uh, Hollywood. That's how I arrived in the cinema industry. Excellent. And had you grown up really loving movies? Loving movies, yes. But just as, uh, you know, uh, just as any, uh, any person, uh, I was going to the movies uh, from time to time, not very often when I was little because I, I was in a boarding school. So there was a, uh, no cinema where I was. But um, yes, and the fact that my dad was a film composer, um, I guess that always attracted me, you know, the, the, the cinema, the dream of cinema always attracted me that way related to my dad, who was a, a film composer because I lived very far from him, didn't see him a lot. So, so that was the connection. And I always dreamed of him making my, my film scores and he died right before my first movie. So, oh, wow. but yeah. I still use his, his music in every film that I did. I have a few recordings that he had sent me before and I use them in all my films. So that's incredible. Yeah. That's a really nice story. We've, we've recently had actually some composers on, on the podcast for film. And so that is something that I truly appreciate and, uh, as, as I progress in my own career, sound is something that I really, really 
appreciate more and more because a lot of people just think of film as a visual medium, but it's, I think it's as equally as an audio medium as it is visual. Well, you're totally right. I mean, it's for me, it's 50, 50, you know, music sound is as important. There's so many things that you can also communicate, you know, by the sound to the, to the audience that uh, suddenly will attract them or that will help them get into the visual aspect. Um, and in terms of emotion, you know, we all, I, I recently saw a Baghdad cafe that I had not seen in, since its release. And what I remember the most from Baghdad cafe is the music, the songs, you know, and, uh, and that never left me. So, you know, it's, it can really leave, leave a, a, a big trace, uh, in you as a, as an audience. And that's, that's why it's so important. And we should be very, uh, careful about that as film directors and creators. Absolutely. So a good man, your most recent film was released in the French cinemas last year. Could you, could you share with us what the inspiration was? Well, a good man is a love story about, um, a trans man who, uh, by love uh, for his uh, uh, companion, uh, who's a woman uh, and cannot have children, um, he's going to carry their children um, because that's the only way that they can have uh, a child the most you know, naturally possible. That was inspired by a documentary uh, that was um, filmed and directed by my co-writer, uh, co-screenwriter, Christian Sanderiger, uh, who directed this uh, movie called Kobe. And it was about his uh, brother, uh, who was a, a, a trans man, uh, American. And um, in that documentary that I, I helped produce a little bit, since it was uh, Christian's first film, I was very much uh, fascinated by a conversation that Jacob Kobe had with his older brother about the fact that he was a few weeks uh, from doing his uh, hysterectomy. Uh, and at the same time, he lived with um, a woman for a, a long time and she didn't want, she was very scared about being pregnant uh very scared about the pregnancy in general and he was you know realizing that uh in their couple the only one who still um could uh, actually uh, carry their child because he really wanted to become a father it was him but at the same time he was very impatient uh to do his hysterectomy so to him it was a big dilemma to have to choose between you know the end of his transition which for him included his hysterectomy, which is not always the case for all the uh, trans men. Some don't uh, need to do it uh, and some do. And it was the case for Jacob. And at the same time, he knew that um, that operation being done, he couldn't carry their child. So he, he had really this uh, dilemma of having to choose between um, uh, you know, his transition and becoming a, a, a parent. And that conversation really opened my eyes, that uh, situation. And um, I talked to Jacob a lot about uh, 
this dilemma and this situation that he was in about his desire to become a parent realized that a lot of trans men do carry their uh, child in America, over 2,000 uh, per year, um, and uh, realized that some people, well, it's very difficult for them to become parent, where for the majority of us, it's uh, probably the simplest thing to do that. So um, there was, to me, something that was really unfair. And, um, and that desire of becoming a parent, which uh, should be allowed to everyone, you know, and nobody should have the right to tell you, you can become a parent or you cannot become a parent. You know, this is such an intimate thing that you're the only one who can decide if you want to become a parent or not. So that's that's how I decided to write about the subject. At the end, Jacob did his hysterectomy. So he he was not like Benjamin in my film. He did not carry their child, but he actually regretted it. But that's it, what inspired me and Christian to write the story of a good man. Excellent. I know it was uh, re- released and well-received at the Cannes Film Festival. H- how was... Uh... How was that screening it at Cannes? Well, there was no screening at Cannes right. <laughs> because it, it right. was the edition of the COVID. That's that's right. Uh-huh. So yeah, it was it was uh, terrible for that reason because of course it's a big honor to be selected at the Cannes Film Festival, but it was the year with no physical edition. So the film was screened then at the Deauville Film Festival. Uh, partner of the Cannes Film Festival for the post, you know, confinement um, edition. And and it was really great to uh, show it at Deauville. But of course, it's not the same than showing it in Cannes. So, yeah. So I I didn't live that incredible moment. (laughs) Well, my apologies. Don't mean to. uh, (laughs) No problem. But uh, I have attended Cannes twice and, you know, it's, it's incredible out there. So I'm yeah. I have no doubt that, we'll, you know, the festival will continue in person and you will have future films that will screen there as well. Well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll tell. <laughs> so in 2012, Bowling was released, which you co-wrote with Jean-Marie Dupré. Is that, is, am I saying it the right way? Du- yeah, Dupré. Dupré. Yeah. And what was the development process like for this project and what made you decide to pick it for a second feature? I actually had first thought because, you know, my first job is producer. You know, that was my uh, first and I'm still a producer and I love being a producer. But before being a writer and a director, I was a producer. Bowling, the I uh, it was a discussion again where... I think Jean-Marie just just said this word, you know, bowling. And at the same time, I saw a um, documentary on um, that happened in Brittany uh, about a hospital and his uh, maternity that was about to close and how this uh, little town in Brittany, in the middle of Brittany, made a revolution um, about that maternity closing, meaning that there would be no one born uh, anymore in their city. And that women had to travel, you know, miles um, 
to go and give birth in another hospital. And that's the case in a lot of hospital and maternities in France, a lot have closed. But in that particular uh, town in Brittany, where I guess in Brittany, you know, there's a certain uh, resistance uh, spirit. Well, they gathered, you know, uh, all the people in that town gathered, especially inspired by women at first, you know, uh, the one that were working in the hospital, nurses, doctors, midwives, but also the women of that city that really wanted to continue being able to give birth in their in their town, uh, that their children, you know, carry the name of of uh, of their of their city. Um, and also just for medical reasons, for danger, you know, risk uh, reasons that they didn't want to travel, you know, uh, 30, 40, 50 miles to um, go, especially when you have an emergency that, you know, when, uh, when it's time to give birth and, and um, to, to have that risk. So they started a revolution in their city to really make the government and the uh, institution over there change their mind. So the, the maternity closed, but then it reopened thanks to all those people who joined together, whether, you know, they didn't have any, they didn't have the same political, you know, uh, ideas at first, but they were all linked by that issue of, of their maternity. And I thought that was a great story, the kind of story that inspires me. Um, so I went to that little city called Carré in Brittany, and there was a, a bowling uh, in that little city, which, which is not always the case, you know. Uh, and so I started imagining um, with the, all the, the women that I met, uh, the mayor uh, who told me about their little war, to, for, for that maternity to, uh, to reopen, uh, I started imagining a story where some of the women uh, that worked in the hospital um, would actually be part of a bowling team um, also. And that's, that's how it was born. I pitched it to, you know, Pate Studios. They loved the idea. And, um, and that's how it, uh, it started. Amazing. And it's interesting, it seems like birth and pregnancy was also a common motif, <laughs> as in a good man. Yeah, and and I also did a movie called, you know, Mother's Day, where <laughs> we talk a lot about that too. I don't know why, I, I don't know why. I actually had an idea today that is around that, that topic again. I was like, what is, what, what's the obsession with that? Because I don't feel like I am obsessed at all with that. But for some reason, I, <laughs> my movies uh, sometimes yeah, tend to, uh, <laughs> to talk about that. I, I think there's a medium that really ties into the subconscious in a really profound way. So Probably. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I I'd, I'd watched your film Once in a Lifetime. Yeah. And I, I really loved it. I thought that was, uh, that was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> um, I hate the title. I had a big fight with my distributor about the title because uh, to me it was like such a stupid you know kind of a i don't know i i and i i wanted to call it leap of faith i like that uh, and uh but they thought that the uh, buyers you know would not understand 
leap of faith. So we had a big fight and at the end they they had the last word. They call it once in a lifetime, but I don't like it. <laughs> I understand. But either way it was a beautiful film. Was was uh was that challenging? First of all, were was everyone an actor and you would cast them or did you work with any non-actors as far as the students? Yeah, it was about 50-50 in the classroom. It was about 50 that were actors, you know, that had a small experience, uh, like Noémie Merlin, which was our first film together. Uh, she had played a small role in another uh, movie. Uh, some, um, uh, yeah, some had a little, a very small experience and 50% of them had absolutely no experience. So they only had the experience of being a student in high school, gotcha. which was very important. Because I thought it was very, very well cast, but it also felt very authentic. Like on one hand, you really felt like you were in a true authentic classroom. And I, I love the way it was shot as well. I know it was pretty handheld. Um, so like it felt like a documentary, but it was also beautifully shot and cinematic, you know, so I, I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, the main character was had lived that story. Ahmed Rame came to me, you know, with... Uh, uh, and he told me his uh, story uh, about what had happened in that class, the teacher that he had, you know, that that uh, concours that they did uh, of the resistance and deportation. And, and so, and I thought that he was, I, I could see how that had, that experience had changed his um, view on so many things and had changed his life and his future because uh, the fact that they actually won, uh, the fact that suddenly the country, because they were received at the Elysee, you know, it's our White House in France, uh, by the Minister of Education, suddenly the fact that they were awarded that, that they were recognized as a uh, you know, valued students who had done something great uh, in their work, well, that changed a lot of things for their future because uh, it was the first time that that actually people were telling them, you're great, you know. Uh, and um, so that was very important for, for them and for their citizenship also to actually feel that they were part of this country and that they were French and part of its history as well. That's incredible. And I, I agree of how profoundly important that could be for somebody that's young to just get any encouragement, especially if previously they had sort of thought of as the underdog or somebody that's not oh, going to really, somebody that's yeah, not going to really were. amount to anything. So that, you know, could be life-changing and yeah. very impactful film. The scene where the Holocaust survivor comes in and He's sharing his story. Wow, that was yeah. really something. Oh, well, you're going to make me cry because I cannot talk about Leon Ziegel without crying. This has been one of the most amazing and important meeting of my life. You know, Leon was the one who came actually in Amit's class. He was the one who came. And, and so I really wanted him, if he accepted, of course, to be part of the of the movie but of course i didn't want him uh to um you know act i wanted him to do you know what he did like hundreds of time in high schools or in colleges uh to tell 
uh, his story, to witness, to transmit, you know, uh, his story to uh, young students. And I had seen how much that impacted Ahmed uh, when he told me uh, the process of, of that year and that uh, concours. And, and um, so I, I really was hoping that Leon uh, would do it. And at first, Leon didn't understand why, you know, because he said there's videos of me, you know, um, in schools and all that. And, and he didn't understand the process of the movie and why he had to do it again in the in the movie and uh, finally he um, he did it. This was an incredible day because I had told the students, I said, today we're not shooting. Forget about the fact we're doing a movie. You just have to listen to Leon and, and just uh, really take it as a gift that what he's going to tell you. And uh, this is an important day in your life. Just take it as an experience and, and don't think about anything else. I don't want you to act. I don't want you to, you know, think about uh, your character and all that. Just be yourself. And, and that's that's all we need. And I really shot them as themselves, you know, listening to Leon. And uh, that was an, an incredible, you know, I had four cameras because, of course, I couldn't tell Leon, oh, please, can you please repeat, you know, when... Right. Your father was killed, you know. Yeah. No, he had it had to do. It was one one shot, one long shot to listen to Leon, and Leon saw the movie. And when he saw the movie, he understood, and he told me, "Oh, I understand now why you wanted me to be in the movie." And um, Leon died a month after the movie was released, and wow. uh, to me, he's still here yeah. thanks to the movie. Absolutely. That's an incredible story. And, and yeah, you read my mind. I was just going to ask about, was it multi-camera? And because those, the reactions also felt so authentic to the students. So did yeah. you also have some of the camera, uh, some of those cameras on the reactions of the students at that time? Or, oh yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And by the way, without knowing, I didn't know it was based on a true story until after I'd watched the film, which makes perfect sense. But, but the, but the authenticity was incredible. So you did an incredible job. Well, thank you. One thing I wanted to ask you is, could you could you share with new directors who might be listening to the podcast any memories of from some of your films, for example, Once in a Lifetime or Heaven Will Wait, where you resolved the problem during shooting, whether it was with you know the production designer or cinematographer or even an actor. I mean, filmmaking is all about problem solving. To me, filmmaking is synonymous with problem solving. Yes, exactly. Uh, and I actually, I'm not afraid of problems. <laughs> and that, that would be my biggest advice is, is not to be worried about that, is, is that whatever the problem is, sometimes the problem will help you create something differently, shoot it differently, make your actor play differently, you know, rewrite the scene and, well, and you will actually be happy of the result and think that thanks to that problem or what you thought uh, was a problem, well, the movie is going to be uh, better. So, um, yes, a movie is always a, you know, a source of problems, but I see them as, um, as helping you to be more creative. Because to find a solution, you have to be creative, whether it's with a cinematographer, 
uh, whether it's with the production designer, whether it's with an actor, you have to be creative. You have to think of, about something that you had not thought of, but that are is going to, you know, uh, help or reinforce um, what the movie is about. So I I don't really have any examples. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, it's okay. Uh, because there's yeah so so many uh, you know I I told about Leon um, the fact that you have to be not to um, uh, let go I mean you if you are persuaded of something if you feel that something is very important you have to uh, you know um, Fight give for it, it all its chances yeah. yes be stubborn sometimes and be uh, persuasive and find arguments that are going to be persuasive for someone uh, because um, it's your movie at the end of the day. So you have to help convince people, um, you know, of something maybe that they did not understand. And it's normal because it's in our head, you know, it's our vision, but to share that vision, sometimes we, we don't always find the right words right away. And so we have to project ourselves into the person we're trying to, you know, make understand what we want, because uh, sometimes it's very clear in our head, but it's not for our actor, it's not for our cinematographer. So that's something that we have to work on and, and, and really not to put any ego into that, you know, just think about why we're making this movie, why it's important, what we want to tell, what we want to the audience to understand, to uh, what emotion we want the audience to, to feel. And then we will find the words to, you know, to convince or to um, make the person understand what we want. Very well said. And are you, are, do you ever find your self in situations where you're about to roll a take and then all of a sudden there's some weird sound somewhere where everybody's trying to investigate the source of it <laughs> and you have to unplug everything. <laughs> well, I find myself in those situations sometimes. I, I must say that um, I, I, I don't think I'm the best uh, director for a, a sound engineer because I, a lot of time I, I'm saying, I don't care. It doesn't matter. You know, if, if I think that we're ready to do something, I'll say, well, it doesn't matter about this, the, the sound on the set, you know, we'll figure it out after we'll do it in post-production. And I had a great sound engineer who did all my movies and he, he knew me. So he knew that, you know, how he had to deal with that. But unfortunately he retired and, and the last movie that I just shot this summer, I had to do it with another sound engineer and I had to, <laughs> he had to deal with my, uh, <laughs> with me, which uh, is not so always easy in terms of, uh, <laughs> of sound on the set. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that, but, but I see the value in that too, because it, then you're not interrupting the flow of something for some, some really trivial reason, like a, like a humming in the background when. And that's, yeah, a, that's but, also important at, time too. At the same time, I, I really understood movie after movie that, uh, as we said in the beginning, sound is so important. And um, to actually, after we stop shooting, you know, make a sound, you know, the ambience, you know, it's very important. And sometimes at when my first movie and my second, I always, I never 
I mean, I didn't take as much time to do that. You know, I, I was like, oh, it's okay. We'll do it in post-production. And I was so wrong. And um, I, I learned that and I know the value that it has uh, when we edit and um, to have all those, you know, uh, sound ambience and um, uh, it's, it's very, very important. So we have to take time always for the sound. Like you had mentioned, you had built an extensive career in producing prior to directing, which I think is great. I think that could only make you even a stronger director as well, because then you kind of, and, and likewise, it makes you probably a better producer than also understanding the directing aspect of it. Also, although yeah. sometimes I'm sure there's certain things that you're here, here I'm thinking of it as a producer and here I'm thinking of it as a director. So maybe it's a tug of war. <laughs> no, but I really feel honestly that I am a better producer since I, I am a different producer for sure. I think sometimes I'm a better producer because um, of course, as a director, I don't place my remarks or my value as a producer in this where I, I put it before. In terms of development, of course, I, I, I think I have a different way of developing with other directors. And in post-production, especially in editing, I think I have a totally different way of um, helping uh, a director in the editing um, period. To me, that that's important. And, and I'm sure some, you know, directors could fear that I produce them saying, oh, well, she's a director as well. So she's going to want to, you know, intervene more and interfere. And, and uh, that's not the case. What I really wanted to add is the value as knowing, you know, having solutions. Because again, you know, having problems is one thing, you know, saying, oh, this is a problem. This doesn't work. You know, this you should change, but, but not bringing solutions to me, then you're worth nothing, you know? So my value is to bring solutions. And after it's their freedom, of course, it's their choice to first see if, if it works and to keep the solution or not, but at least to bring solutions, to offer solution. That's, that's very important to me. That makes perfect sense. What was the process involved to get Philippe Torreton uh, attached to Monsieur N. Monsieur, Monsieur N and <laughs> Antoine de Caen? De Caen. De Caen <laughs> as director. I'm surprised at that question because this is my first production and uh, I, I, I. We dig deep here at Globe Screens. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the the process was um, uh, we developed that screenplay with um, a director called René Monzor. Uh, René Monzor is a director that I I had met at the film festival at the Cannes Film Festival market, and um, and I I thought he had a lot of talent. I made him come to the states at that time. I lived in the states. I you know I found him an agent, uh, and he actually made a movie over there and some series after that. And and he was a big fan of Napoleon. Uh, as my partner, uh, my producing partner was at the time, and so we pitched him that idea of Monsieur N. You know that maybe Napoleon didn't die in Saint Helena and that he actually died in a 
in the United States. <laughs> um, but um, and uh, so he wrote a great screenplay. But for some reason, uh, we couldn't finance the movie with him attached as a director. And Rene has the had the great intelligence uh, and honesty to say, okay, what I want for this movie is that it happens, that you can produce it. So if you find another director that you'll be able to, um, you know, um, find a financing for, then I'll, you know, it's fine. We, I had met Antoine de Cohn through my um, AIDS uh, organization where I uh, was, and he, he was the president, the honor president. Solidarité Sida and um, and I um, actually you know we sent him the script uh, and he read it and he said yes in 24 hours and so the distributor was very excited about that idea of Antoine directing that uh, movie and then there was really only one actor at that time that could you know represent uh, napoleon and that was philippe doreton who's a great you know uh, actor a great theater actor um so yeah that was uh that was the the process amazing and for wawa did richard e grant approach you about that project or did your co-producers from monsieur and uh, bring you into the film no it was all my fault you know Richard E. Grant and Wawa is a very painful experience oh <laughs> so we're gonna finish if that's the last question we're gonna finish with a painful question <laughs> well I don't uh, want to finish with a, a painful thing <laughs> I'm I'm a very I'm a very romantic and mel melancholic person and when we finished shooting Monsieur N, it was the last day of the shooting. We were on a boat. Everybody was very sick because of the, you know, uh, of being on the sea. The, it was quite agitated and everybody was very sick, uh, seasick. And um, I asked Richard, you know, what he was going to do after Monsieur N. And he told me that he had just written a screenplay that he had uh, a producer in England, but that's nothing apparently was happening. And, and because I'm very melancholic and I, I, I wanted to like not finish that Monsieur N, you know, experience, which was our first production. I said, oh, well, send us the script, uh, Richard. And, you know, um, we'll read it and, and uh, I'd love to help you. And that's what I did. I, I did so many incredible things for that movie to be financed, you know, find some money in South Africa, some, you know, shoot in Swaziland, find some money in England. So I'm the one who really brought the movie to everyone and convinced everyone to uh, uh, finance that first feature film because we liked Richard we liked his story uh and I wanted to continue you know that that uh Monsieur N family you know uh it was the first the same uh, director of photography you know uh, it was um so but that was the beginning the first the day where I told Richard E. Grant that that's it the film was green lighted well I met another person uh, Richard E. Grant was definitely 
two people in one and uh, there was one that I didn't know and uh, it was another <laughs> another uh, another story oh but, wow yeah that happens that happens yeah yes. unfortunately perhaps on a more positive note what could we look forward to in the future well i i um i just finished shooting a a new movie that i'm editing uh, right now it's called uh, divertimento and it's about a um it's based on a true story again on uh, the story of zaya ziwani who's um who was a young um woman fascinated by symphonic you know music wanted to become an, a, a chef uh, orchestra director, as you probably know, there's in the world about six six percent of of women who are, you know, chef in uh, in orchestra. In France, it's only four percent still now. The movie takes place in 1995, where she's only 18 because she wants to become a chef, and uh, be- because of all the obstacles that uh, people, you know. Um, and a lot of men in that, you know, universe of, of the classical and symphonic, you know, um, uh, world and universe uh, put in her way. She created her own orchestra, Divertimento, and she wanted that orchestra to uh, look like no other orchestra where, you know, women had, would have the same place than men, where there would be diversity where that had that didn't you know happen in in all the uh, concerts that she would go see there was you know mainly white men uh, and a few women and you know no people that looked like her who came from you know the immigration and uh, who were either black or coming from uh, uh, you know Morocco or Algeria. And she wanted to, um, or handicapped people. So she created an orchestra that was unique. And uh, she also wanted to bring the music that fascinated her since she was a child to uh, territories where people could not have access to that music. And um, so she's a fascinating young lady um, with her twin sister. And they created that that orchestra, and the movie is about is about that and about their their life and destiny. Amazing! Well, I I can't wait to see it when it comes out. <laughs> MC, yeah. I greatly greatly appreciate you being on the Globe Screen podcast. I thoroughly enjoy talking to you, and um, look well, forward. Well, thank to- you very much, and I hope I can talk to you soon about a movie shot in English. I'm I'm going to Vancouver and Los Angeles in a, a few days and because I want to do a movie in English and I want to do a movie in the States or in Canada. So Amazing. <laughs> Hopefully we get a chance to talk again <laughs> once, <laughs> uh, once you complete your future project. We'd love to speak with you again about, all about it. All right. Uh, we'll do that with pleasure. <laughs>